Who am I, Kylie? Why a fox? Why not a, a horse or a beetle or a bald eagle? I'm saying this more as, like, existentialism, you know? I don't know what you're talking about, but it sounds illegal. Fox hunting has been a contentious issue for hundreds of years. The first fox hunt recorded was in Norfolk, in the east of England, in 1534. Farmers would then hunt foxes with dogs as a form of pest control. Two centuries later, dogs were trained to hunt foxes specifically, the oldest traditional fox hunt originating in the Yorkshire town of Billsdale in the 17th century, according to Jane Ridley's 1990 book titled Fox Hunting, published by HarperCollins. But this podcast is not solely concerned with the plight of the humble fox. I use fox hunting as a case study to observe the evolution of protest and the methodology behind protesting in modern times. With me today is John McEldowney. Graduating from King's College, Cambridge with a PhD specialising in common law, human rights and financial law. In 2000, he was the World Bank Visiting Fellow in the Supreme Tribunal of Justice in Venezuela. Then, McEldowney was elected New Zealand Law Foundation Distinguishing Visiting Fellow. That was in 2001. Later in 2004, he was awarded a Medal of Honor from the Lille II University of Health and Law. Recently, he was appointed a member of the Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences by Pope Francis. He is currently a member of the expert group at the Bingham Centre for the Rule of Law on the Withdrawal Bill to Leave the EU. John is now a professor of law at the University of Warwick and has been since 1987. Welcome, John. Would you tell me about fox hunting, please, right. John? Well, let's start at the beginning. The question of fox hunting is very much a country pursuit, which I think goes back into the earliest histories of this country. Hmm. And to some extent, you could regard it as part and parcel of the rights of land and land of gentry, hmm. people who are today described as farming, the farming community. Basic rationale for it, Benthamite rationale, is that it's the, it's necessary because of the vermin on farms. Absolutely. Added to that, there is of course the enjoyment that comes with the visual scene on notable events, famous hunts are held. So therefore, its exclusivity is in fact almost part and parcel of its history, but also, I suspect, almost consistent. In other mm. words. It was a way of producing an egalitarian outcome because everyone participates at different levels. You didn't ride, you could still walk to the hunt or watch it. So it became a visual settlement, a form of communication right across all the social classes in a village or town. In more modern times, of course, it's become entirely contested. And I think the reasons for that contest come from several sources. The League Against Cruel Sports being one, lobby group. Yes. And then in the middle of that, I think the RSPCA who have been particularly concerned about the welfare of animals generally. It's fair to say the treatment of animals generally has changed. And that, I think, comes to the more general issue about how animals are looked at in terms of legislation generally. So, in that respect, there is likely to be a divergence of opinion, a conflict between two perceptions, a historic cultural movement, great longevity, representing, for some people, pleasure, for others, a spectacle to watch, as against a more critical view, which comes from people who think it's, un- it's inherently cruel, unnecessary, and so on. And then, after a lot of discussion, the Labour Party decided this was going to be part of their 
manifesto Absolutely. election. Quite how it got there, I'm not sure in terms of manifesto. I can shed some light into that because the political animal lobby yes. had donated oh, right. around a million pounds to, to the Labour, Labour Party previous oh, to the 1997 election, followed very by yes, a yes. buffer of £100,000. So that makes sense. Yeah, That's very helpful because I didn't know precisely that. The political animal lobby had also made donations to the Conservatives of and course, the Liberal yes, Democrats. The, the point you're making is rather a good one. Lobbying groups who donate to political parties, plural, mm. can in fact then produce some form of standing, if you like, or pressure for the political party to listen to their cause. Fair so enough. the origins of the protest came not from picket lines. Mm. The form of urbanised protest would be as appropriate. I mean, maybe in France, yes, slightly different paradigm. Yes. But in this country, I think that's a very important point. And I like, I like that point because I think it also illustrates an important distinction between countryside and urban living. Exactly. What is an urban fox to some is seen as simply evidence of the failure of the country to regulate foxes, if you see what I mean. Let's go then to the Hunting Act of 2004. It is not an absolute ban. What it tends to do is to prevent general hunting of dogs as something to be banned, but it allows the flushing out of mammals through the use of two dogs. And then, as I see it, but I looked at the Act carefully, Schedule 1 has a number of activities that, in limited circumstances, with the of the owner may take place, mm. including use of dogs below ground to protect birds for shooting, ratting, rabbiting, retrieval of hares and flushing for falconry, recapture of wild mammals, rescue of wild mammals, research and observation. So you could argue the main focus of the restriction is in the number of animals, dogs, being used, and also restrictions that would imply it's hard to know if, for example, I use some dogs to flush out animals, that there are more than two dogs, that that would in fact be legal. There's an aspect of fox hunting which people don't talk about, and that is what happens to the dogs when they get injured on the hunt. An unintended consequence of the hunt may be to damage the very animals, including the horses, by the way. But, just, I thought you'd like to know this, I checked some statistics... 45,000 people regularly take part in hunts. Is that so? And something like 250,000 turn out for Boxing Day meets. That suggests that the protest element of getting the law changed has also not dimmed the success of hunting in terms of its popularity. Game yes. laws have been around Out for a long time since the yes. reign of Richard yes. II, and it was only in the 1660s that hounds were trained specifically to hunt foxes. The protest against fox hunting began in 1949, when two private members' bills were produced, were produced to yeah. ban or restrict hunting, yeah. Yeah. but it failed because, and I quote, fox hunting makes a very important contribution to the control of foxes and yeah. involves less cruelty than most other methods of controlling them. It should therefore be allowed to continue. Let's distinguish two things. Yes. Protest generically, and protest which is focused on parliamentary outcomes. Yes. And this is a classic example of parliamentary outcomes, not only being the focus of the protest, but also the focus of protests against the protests. There's now a protest the other way, that the Act is not working as effectively as it might, mm -hmm. and therefore the Act needs reform. Protest may become a tool in the hands of different causes for different reasons, but the contested focus in this particular case is oddly parliamentary, isn't it? Uh, although the matter has not been settled by Parliament, 
it's regarded that Parliament has a settlement within its, shall we say, jurisdiction. So this is a way in which, if you like, Parliament has taken charge of the issue by passing the Act. And then, having taken charge of it, is also now responsible for the mode of protest against it. What I did for you was to look at the prosecutions. Oh, would you like to know? Yes, there were a few prosecutions. Well, The I, first one was in 2005. 2005. I've got the statistics here up to 2014. There were 64 proceeded against, with only 35 found guilty. Hmm. And in 2013, 110 proceeded against, with only 56 found guilty. The argument is put like this. Current law is unsatisfactory in terms of enforcement. Consequently, is bringing the law into disrepute. Problems have, have occurred in the law because of the, the, the development of false alibis, exploitation yes. of loopholes, both the League Against Cruel Sports and the IFAW have begun in 2015 in March to campaign for amendments to the Hunting Act to improve its enforcement. Have you looked at Scotland? Protection of Wild Mammals Scotland Act. It's the 2002 Act. And basically it allows people to have more than two dogs. Is that so? Yeah, because I, I know that two dogs is the, is the limit. And the argument is that exemption allows any number of dogs to be used for the purpose of flushing a wild mammal from cover. So the Scotland Act is seen as a better example than England in terms of those who are in favour of, of hunting with dogs. And it says the following, exemptions allowed constantly in Scotland where packs of hounds are used to flush foxes with the intention of shooting them. So that's one of the potential ideas of reform. So it might be useful, it gives you another model of an outcome, again, parliamentary, but with a different outcome. Is it right for governments to regulate private legal enjoyment of one's rights? Yes, I think it is right that Parliament should have a say on this. Parliament is there both to set out a standard, expect people to live by that standard, but also I think that it'd be a very weird thing if historic reasoning was fixed at all time. The, the fear is that with animal welfare being mostly EU regulation, yes, that once that, that is taken away, yeah, yeah. what will remain? I think that we were heading in the same direction as the EU, perhaps with a slightly more nuanced picture of what was required. So therefore, in a sense, we're not that far away. As to, maybe the vision might be different, or the rhetoric. But the substance, I think, there's common ground that you can't ill-treat animals in the way that it was acceptable a long time ago. Is social media important to protest? Yes. I think it's, it's, it's the key question. It's the most... I'm glad you raised it. I think it's the question I'd start with, because in a way, it does fit, because you're quite right about it, because it both informs or misinforms, depending on your view, Absolutely. but it captures so much of the public imagination that, in fact, it defines its own truth. In the past, where we've seen underground funding now, social media is the bigger influencer yes, of yes. parliamentary change, yes. despite the fact that they haven't contributed any monetary value. Exactly. The collective outrage is worth more yes. than monetary value. That's been recognised by the parliamentary authorities, particularly under John Burko. Not just the growth of e-petitions, but their availability. So e-petitions e are used as a way of getting what are called Westminster Hall to bits threshold of which is so many thousand. 10,000, I think. Exactly. That seems to me to be way ahead of any textbook notion about media, newspapers having a role. If anything, it puts a lot of pressure 
or the politician to listen to what we call public opinion. Provided you've got the number of petitioners, you've got a, a debate. Recently, there was a backlash mm. against the Conservative government. Theresa May wanted to afford much in the same as what happened in Scotland, that loopholes wouldn't be exploited yes. so much. But of course, this was misinterpreted as yeah. we're going to make fox hunting legal again. So the backlash against that was mainly on social media. But also there's a backlash about the way she was choosing to do it, to make the change. She was trying to do it by statutory instrument, yes. which I think this regard has not perhaps been the best way politically to carry the day. So what would be a more efficient, politically achievable goal? For there should be a debate about it first. We should be informed. I mean, I've been scrambling around to get the information, but we should have informed discussion about it. I suspect a free vote in the House is needed. Yes, uh, uh, like, like it was in 2003, yeah, a free exactly, vote was given. Exactly. Now, whether the House of Lords, its present composition, will either go with an amendment that tightens up the Act to make it easier to enforce, or the other way, to reduce its enforceability by allowing a greater deal of latitude is another matter. But certainly it should be done in that way. And I think the other bit is the mistake to believe reforms are single moments in time. I think they're always to do with continuation. We've looked at protests in the past, yeah. we've looked at protests in the present, and the accountability that social media brings to government. What do you think is going to be the view for protests in the future? How do you think it's going to change? Well, the big issue is whether we've enough accountability of the social media we talked about. Mm. That's really a tricky question. The question is, is there validity in the notion of that sort of debate? And I would have thought mm. the answer is yes. Yes. But at the same time, I also would say that it's surely case that a society should be tolerant also of the role and function of MPs, that they have a primary role to decide, having heard the debate, or not as the case may be, that they should make a decision. And I think we shouldn't substitute one form of decision-maker for another. Vox Populi yeah. was the founding reason upon which the MP was elected in the first place. Or not. I don't or think not. that's right, you see. I think that's a nice thought, and uh, I wish it were true. But you have to really wait quite late on to get women into the into Parliament. Um, uh -huh. They were representative of the people that voted them in. Originally landed, property, and then as that became universal, then there was a different relationship. But fundamentally, unlike many other countries, because we're still a parliamentary democracy, we still put representativeness in terms of the constituency MP as fundamental to the role of the MP. And that, I think, should not be forgotten. I think it's often forgotten by the MPs themselves. Hi, hi. But it's, it's how it is. But it is actually true that MPs have a role and function, shall we say, assimilated perhaps with the pressures that are put upon them, namely that they are part of a political party and so on. But increasingly, they will have to make decisions individually. For example, assisted suicide. Or even if you want to look at other issues relating to the death penalty or something like that. There are a lot of issues that individual MPs have to make decisions not as representatives of the constituency alone, but also in their own decision that they make. And that's the balance. So you've got almost three or four different things coming together. MPs are both constituency MPs, representative, as you say, of a popular vote. At the same time, individuals who should make decisions, and at the same time, members of political parties of which they owe allegiance. 
and so there's that's a lot the, of accountability. There's a lot of well, or there's you, that's very you're optimistic. There's a lot of confusion uh, or conflict. Okay, I think a lot are are conflicted by it, but it also shows that if protests focus is the parliamentary, it's stuck with that. It's stuck with the parliamentary system. In other words, the parliamentary system negotiates these different functions. I think in the way in which the operation of what we call the institution works. The only exception to that, oddly enough, is the point you made earlier on, which is the giving of money as a donor with the expectation of outcome. Mm. And I think that while that has become more transparent, i.e. registered, and it still rankles with the system. It doesn't quite fit in the system that you should pay a lot of money for an outcome. It has got lots of problems with it. Parties do this at their own peril. I think I think I prefer it to be that way. To be honest, hmm. I don't think one should pay a lot of money to get an outcome. Law is based on universal principles of right and wrong, or uh, negotiated principles of, of justice. Exactly. Say. But I mean, the point is this: not, that's not. right. I think, I think you're you're putting your finger on a very delicate but important point. Do modern democracies, plural, and ours in particular, do they actually have enough sense to realise that they could easily be swept up into the moral <laughs> panic of a moment and then repent over the years that they've overreacted and done something rather stupid. There's always a legislative response to the latest crisis of some variety. And what I'm thinking is that what this example of the fox hunting case study shows is that Parliament has spoken, it hasn't resolved the problem, it's redefined it I think, Mm. and it's redefined the nature of both protest, both for and against. The outcome is still uncertain because reconciling the opposing views is in fact very difficult on objective analysis. It's often done on the basis of people's own opinions or even prejudice. And that, I think, makes it very difficult. And Parliament, I think, generally speaking, always likes to be a couple of steps behind what is popular. The Act was really an attempt to to settle something by way of compromise, but as not surprising, it's not very successful. For others, it may be successful. I think you've redefined protest (laughs) as parliamentary. This is a present for you. Um, Oh, thank you. There's no reason why you can't see what I was using. Oh, thank you. Have a read of that. It's rather helpful. It is. Thank you so much, John. No problem. Happy to help. So what have we gleaned from this podcast? The origin of modern protest of fox hunting did not come from urbanised picket lines and strikes, rather animal welfare associations such as the International Fund for Animal Welfare made donations to political parties in the hope of having their ideals reflected in policy grounds. Labour won their 1997 election partially because of their platform of introducing a ban on fox hunting. More recently, protesting a cause by involving monetary contributions would have the opposite effect than desired by the funding parties. One need only look at how vilified the Clinton Foundation was when it was discovered that it had accepted donations from Saudi Arabia prior to the 2016 election. Now protest has changed from transactional unseen forces to something entirely more genuine. The existence of social media allows for the dissemination of information in an unprecedented way. This has led to the existence of e-petitions, which guarantee a certain level of accountability and transparency from elected members of parliament. The focus of protests has changed from an idea of proposed legislation to the protesting of the legislation itself. 
From defiance of authority, we have come to a presumed acceptance of authority and a vociferous opposition to the method of legal enforcement rather than the issue itself. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. This is Cedric Convoy, signing off.